All right, all nations, oh, man, beautiful Sunday, beautiful group. Uh, we're just so excited and blessed to be able to worship together as a family of God. Uh, now, if I were to pull most of our church leaders, maybe our staff, uh, our deacons, our small group leaders, our worship leaders, and I just pulled everyone and just started asking, hey, um, how would you account for your spiritual growth? Or in other words, if I asked them, how did you become the, the more mature Christian that you are today? You know, t- tell me about that process. Uh, what do you think most would say? What do you think most would say? Besides the grace of God and the gospel, um, how would most leaders account uh, for their life transformation, uh, for their discipleship, and for their growth? Some might refer to a book they read that really transformed them. Uh, maybe they read like a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and it just really just rocked them and, and grew them a lot. Uh, maybe others would say, you know what, it, my life transformed once I started taking my quiet time seriously. Reading the Bible, spending time in prayer, once I built up those disciplines, God really changed my life. And maybe a couple of people would say that. Uh, and those are great responses. But I actually believe that most people would tell you that the most, most formative factor in their life, in their spiritual life, in their renovation, in their development was not their own discipline, was not something that they did upon themselves and for themselves. Rather, it was because of a couple of key relationships in their lives. Whether it was the presence of a a mentor, a pastor, a small group leader, a friend uh, to provide for them shepherding, encouragement, accountability, whatever it might be, I really believe that most of us would say that it's a relationship that had the most formative impact in our lives. And I know this is true for me. Looking back in my life, God has used many people uh, to shape me, uh, to encourage me and show me what it looks like to follow Christ. In high school, it was my youth pastor and my worship leader. They just let me follow them around everywhere. And they, they encouraged me, they believed in me, uh, they gave me opportunities to serve and participate in ministry, and they absolutely changed my life. They showed me what it means to love God and to serve the church. Uh, then in college, it was my campus ministry pastor who spent one-on-one time with me, and he really showed me the joy and the depth of spending time with God, uh, the spiritual disciplines. Uh, like That was just an amazing season, and I owe so much of my growth to him. Uh, then later when I went into seminary, it was friendships. Uh, the Lord gave me some key, precious friendships that gave me just great encouragement, great accountability, that really challenged me uh, to grow, uh, to seek God and to serve and, and lead in, in uh, just more mature ways. And church, I believe, I, I genuinely believe that no one grows on their own. No one grows on their own. And that we grow best in the context of community, We grow best in the context of relationships. Um, And so as we finish our series on Renovation by Grace, which is a series all about experiencing the life transformation that God wants for us to make us more and more like Jesus, as we finish this series, the title of today's message is Renovation in Community. Renovation in Community. Uh, Because just as we've been pressing the fact that you can't change your own heart, You can't change your own mind. You can't change your own habits. You can't kill sin on your own. That we desperately need God and his grace. The last thing that we need to learn is we can't do it alone. It's not just you and God to make you more like Jesus. God has designed us for community. 
And he wants us to experience transformation in the context of relationships and community. So we're going to look at two things. First, we're going to look at the foundation of spiritual community, the foundation of our spiritual community, and second, the dynamics of a spiritual community, the dynamics. Uh, The foundation is going to tell us the basis of our community. What are we building our community upon? What are we gathered around? What are we centered upon? And secondly, the dynamics. They're going to show us what community looks like. What are the rhythms? What are the practices? What are the habits of community? How do we build it? How do we know when we have it? How do we practice it? And so let's start with the foundation of spiritual community. Now, community is a tricky, tricky word in the church today. Everyone loves to use it. And um, if you ask somebody who is leaving their church or thinking about leaving the church or has left their church, uh, why? Why are you leaving your church? Why did you leave your church? Uh, The popular answer today isn't, oh, the preacher is terrible. Uh, Most people don't leave because their doctrine is bad. They don't leave because the music is no good. Most people will tell you, I'm leaving my church because I don't have community. Have you guys heard that before? Have you used that one before, right? Um, That's what they say. I just didn't have community. And so I'm always curious as to what they mean. So I I press a little bit. I'm like, what do you mean by community? Because to me, when I hear people share, it seems like a vague combination of people looking for similar interests in a similar life stage that they enjoy spending time with. Like that's, that's community for me, right? People that are right around my age, right around my life stage and life experience, and I need to enjoy spending time with them, have chemistry with them, and then that's community. That's spiritual community. So college upperclassmen, if there's too many freshmen in the college group, you feel like you don't have community. You don't want to spend a bunch of time with them. Or if you're like one of the few freshmen and everyone else seems to be an upperclassman, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't have community. Guys, they're like three years, two years older than you, right? That's so weird, right? Singles are looking for other singles, but if you're like 30-something, you don't want to hang out with the 20-somethings. And so it has to be the right kind of single, right, for you. Married couples without kids want to find other married couples without kids to hang out with. So you can actually go out to dinner and hang out and watch movies and maybe go on vacations together. And then married couples with kids want to find other married couples with kids to hang out with. And and I get that. The list goes on and on. Uh, Birds of the same feather flock together. There's, There's that phrase. But on top of just a similar life stage, after that, you're like, and then, and then we need to have chemistry. I actually want to enjoy spending time with them, not just be in the same life stage as them, but actually have chemistry and to enjoy spending time with them. And so after I hear this exhausting list, I've often said, tongue-in-cheek, that today community seems to be something everyone longs for and no one seems to have, right? Community seems to be something everyone is looking for. Everyone is complaining that they don't have, right? But they all want it. We're all talking about it. We're all reaching for it. We're all expecting it, but no one seems to have community, Well, Jerry Bridges, a Christian theologian and author, he writes in his book, True Community, which I think I'm going to go through with all of our small group leaders this year, uh, writes that community in the broadest sense, in the broadest sense, is a group of people who have something in common. That's a community. And so that's why you can have a community centered around an ethnic group. You can be a Korean community. Or you live in Glendale, you can be an Armenian community, right? Um, It can be an ethnic community. Or it could just be a common interest group like sports, music, 
social issues, right? Uh, we could be the, you know, uh, March for Dimes community, and we're going to beat cancer and whatever it might be. Uh, but the Bible doesn't use community in this just general vague word. Uh, in the Bible, we see this word called koinonia to describe community. Koinonia. And koinonia is translated as fellowship, as fellowship, and it means the sharing of a common life. Koinonia, translated as fellowship, means the sharing of a common life. Not just common interests, but a common life. Now, we have made a real... I mean, if we have jacked up community, we've jacked up the word fellowship, right, in the church, because we have reduced fellowship to a bunch of common interests. So there's a hiking fellowship, there's a softball fellowship, there's a tea, like, you know, the girls will invite you to a tea fellowship. You're like, okay, what are we going to do? Drink tea, right? Okay, that's fellowship, right? Um, in, our, in our Korean church, there's a, uh, like a wood stick fighting. It's called kumdo. They're like a fellowship. We have a robotics fellowship. There's a photography fellowship. It's, it's every hobby that you might have. You find other people in the church that have that same hobby, and then you call yourselves a fellowship, right? That's what we've done in the church. But that's not how scripture uses the word fellowship. That's not how scripture uses the word koinonia. The first time we see the word fellowship in the New Testament, it's in the books of, book of Acts. And the author of Acts, who's Luke, he's describing the early church right after Peter preached uh, an amazing, powerful sermon at Pentecost. Thousands came to faith in Jesus Christ. And in Acts 2.42, this is what Luke writes. And they, the believers, the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And prayers, right? Do you see how the word fellowship is used here? You see, what we do today, we say, hey, why don't you come fellowship with us? We, we think fellowship is a verb, like something you do, and, and it's a common interest, a hobby. But here, it's not a verb, it's a noun. It's a noun. Fellowship isn't defined as a Christian social activity. It means a whole lot more. It means something that Christians belonged to, a life that was shared. Also consider what the Apostle John says in 1 John about fellowship in the body of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 3, this is what John writes. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And it might look to some that, that that fellowship is being used as a verb. It's not. It's a noun in the Greek as well. It's a noun right there. And here's the main idea behind fellowship. It's not a social activity. It's not a hobby. It's a relationship. Fellowship is a relationship we have first with God and then a relationship we share with others in the body of Christ. And so Jerry Bridges, he kind of ties it all together and he says this in his book. Biblical community is first of all, the sharing of a common life in Christ. It's when we grasp this truth that we are in a position to understand true community. Okay? Fellowship is about being in Christ, sharing the life in Christ. And when we are rooted and grounded in Christ, that's when we can have true community. Now, Paul in his letter to the Colossians. He takes this even one step deeper, goes one step further, and he describes the foundation of an ethnically and socially diverse church. So Paul says, hey, out of diversity, there can be unity, okay? 
Uh, you don't all have to look the same. You don't all have to be, like, exist in the same income bracket or the socioeconomic level, right? He's like, out of diversity, their church can have unity. And this is what he says in Colossians 3. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all, right? Christ is all and in all. Church, what is the foundation of Christian community? What allows for us to experience unity out of diversity? And it's the fact that every believer, each and every believer, to us, Christ is all. And Christ and his spirit is dwelling inside of us. That is our shared life. That's our shared experience. We are literally partaking and sharing in the fact that the Holy Spirit is residing and dwelling inside of us, making us new, making us alive, and making us part of God's family. So Sinclair Ferguson, another theologian that I love reading, he writes, there is no intimacy in the world deeper than this. There's no intimacy in the world deeper than this, that there is only one Christ and he dwells in each believer. We cannot get closer to each other than this, than this proximity that we have in Christ, this shared life that we have in the Holy Spirit. But here's the problem. Do you believe this? Do you have this? Do you experience this kind of fellowship, this kind of intimacy, this kind of community? Because a lot of times we, we, we sit in church together and you don't even want to talk to each other. You only want to talk to your friends. You don't want to meet new people. And so when Dave is like, hey, do a front side, left and right, hello, you're like, you know what? I'll just go left and right. And you're actually just talking to your friends that you sat next to or your spouse that you sat, you're sitting next to, right? The crazy thing for us is even though there is no greater intimacy than the union and the, and the shared fellowship that we have in Jesus and through the Holy Spirit, we enjoy a greater sense of community with, if you're a dog owner, when you walk, when you go to a dog park, you suddenly get to talk to every other dog owner and you, you just have camaraderie and you pet other people's dogs and you chat it up and you talk it up. And like, I, I once was hiking in Pasadena with my wife, Alice, and we had our dog Piper and this, this, this couple with like three of their dogs, like loved our dog so much. And they were following us on this hiking trail. We actually exchanged phone numbers, Right. Guys, I want to confess something to you. There are people at this church that have Facebook friended me and I have not responded to, right? Namely, your parents. A lot of your parents' Facebook. I do, I, you know, I don't even, I say, I just ignore. I don't decline. I just scroll right past it, right? But they're like my family. We're, we're supposed to be churched together. We're supposed to be brothers and sisters. I want to have nothing to do with them on social media. And yet I will meet somebody with a dog that looks like my dog and give them my phone number. It was so crazy right? Or, or back when I used to go to USC football games and when we were beating UCLA at the Rose Bowl and beating Michigan at the Rose Bowl, it was unbelievable. And, I'm, and literally, after we score a touchdown, that whole front, back, left, right, high five, no problem. I'm, if it's a church, I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. I'll just say, hey, Alice. Hey, friend, what's up? But, it, but after USC scores a touchdown, I don't just high five. I'm hugging strangers, like at just embracing and going crazy, why? Because we have a common interest. But church, church, Christians, brothers and sisters, we don't just share a common interest. We have a common Lord. We have a common salvation. We have a common life. 
And that's what the Bible is inviting us to. That's what God is pleading us to truly consider today, true fellowship and true community. It's shared when we, say, when we share the same Lord and Spirit inside of us. Yes, it's true. You can have great friendships. You can enjoy shared experiences around food, sports, music, culture. But you cannot have a deeper, more profound experience of community apart from being united in Christ. It's one thing to share a superficial common interest with someone. By the way, um, I screened my phone calls. So for a while, if that weird couple on the hiking trail, they call, I realized what I just did, and I was like, I do not want to talk to them. And so um, that was just a superficial, momentary moment of friendship, right? Um, it's another thing to become a new creation. It's another thing to belong to a new family in Christ. Jesus is the foundation of a true spiritual community, okay? Now, what does a new community do, right? What does it look like? How do we experience renovation in community? So let's look now at the dynamics of a spiritual community. Paul, in the letter to the Colossians, he describes for us a life as members of the community of Christ. Uh, and in Colossians 3, it's gonna go up on the screen. Uh, if, you have, if, you, if you wanna follow along in your Bibles, we're gonna look at Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. Uh, But he describes for us life as members uh, in the body of Christ. He says this. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give you thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. In this passage, I believe we see the dynamics of the Christian community. And it's in the context of such a community where our godliness is both tested and exercised, right? So renovation, right? This word called sanctification, what is it all about? It's all about being made more like Jesus. It's being, it's all about growing in godliness, growing in holiness. Well, guys, right here, In community, if you're a member of the body of Jesus Christ, that is where your godliness, your holiness, your Christ-likeness is going to be both tested and exercised. Christian community is both a battlefield and a harvest field for godliness, okay? It is. It is both a battlefield and a harvest field for godliness. This is where God uses community to renovate us. Let me explain what I mean by the battlefield harvest field analogy. Well, first of all, we see that Paul is writing to believers here. And he describes the church, he describes us as God's chosen ones. We are holy and beloved. We are the ones who have received forgiveness from Christ. And we've been grafted into the body of Christ. We've been brought into into this community of God. But as Paul quickly acknowledges, this community is not perfect. It's a battlefield where we must learn to bear with one another where we will complain about each other and must learn to forgive each other, okay? Paul says that, right? 
as, as wonderful, as beautiful, as majestic as the body of Christ is, as the community of Jesus is, Paul says, it's not perfect. You're gonna complain about each other. You're gonna complain about me. And what we have to do is learn how to forgive each other. We have to learn how to forbear with each other. Do you know, church, what the majority of our, that, that the majority of our sins, they involve others. They're in the context of relationship, right? Sins of jealousy, anger, lust, gossip, pride. If you existed in a vacuum and never had any relationships, there'd be no lust, jealousy, pride, right? You wouldn't be angry with a neighbor. If you have no neighbors, you have no neighbors to be angry at, right? So many of our sins, most of our sins, they, they come up out of, a const, out of broken and dysfunctional relationships. You see, our sins, they're not isolated, right? They're not isolated. They're not independent struggles. We struggle with sin within community, within our families, within our church, within our friends. And God is working to renovate our hearts and our minds to make us like Christ. If God is working to, to renovate us, then we're called to practice grace and forgiveness to others when they frustrate us, when they disappoint us, even as they wound us. Now, here's the thing. We don't approach community in Christ as a battlefield. We don't. We don't come to church each day thinking like, okay, now who am I going to forgive? Who am I going to forbear? Who am I going to understand? We come expecting to be part of something like godly, to meet a bunch of good people that will love you, encourage you, show hospitality towards you, affirm you, and, 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 and just really bless you, right? You come looking to be blessed. You come to church to be blessed. You go to small group to be blessed. You don't come, you don't go to small group looking to be tested and tempted and tried, right? But we're naive. We're naive and we don't realize that we will offend each other. We don't realize that each offense though, right? It doesn't end as an offense. What's amazing is we have the opportunity to see each offense as an opportunity God gives you to practice forgiveness. That each moment of jealousy, each moment of sin, each moment of division that you see and you experience, it's a moment where God's like, unity. You can fight for unity right now. You can be a peacemaker right now. You can practice and demonstrate holiness and Christ-likeness right now. I heard one brother complain that he could handle fighting against the enemy outside of the church He's like, I can do that all day. I can go on the mission field. I can fight the spiritual battle. I can fight the enemy outside of the church. But he was like, what I cannot handle is friendly fire within the church. And when I first heard that, I was like, ah, oh, amen, that sucks. No friendly fire. We should not have friendly fire in the church. But you know what Paul says? There's gonna be friendly fire. There is friendly fire, right? I wish I had told him that our Lord allows friendly fire within the church to actually build us up, to make us like Christ, to remind us right, that, that, that our relationships are only gonna work, that our church will only be healthy and united, not if we never disagree. No, we'll only be united if we forbear with one another, if we love one another, if we forgive one another, if we fight for unity, right? And really guard and care for one another. Think about friendly fire. Remember our Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't he slain by the ones he came to save? 
Wasn't he abandoned and betrayed by his own disciples? But what did Jesus do? Was he like, not you guys too, right? He prayed for his disciples. He loved them. He died for them. And if sanctification is making us more like Christ, if that's what sanctification is, if that's what the goal of our renovation is, then we must learn to suffer like Christ. And we must learn to love like Christ. The fundamental reason why churches split and why communities are broken is because we fail and refuse to forgive and forbear with one another. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says on this. He says this. So this is where we begin. This is where we begin. If the Lord of glory is prepared to live in them with love, and that's all of us, should we not be prepared to live with them in love too? Okay. So right now, think of that brother or sister who just just irks you, right? That brother or sister that you're like, oh, I do not want to serve on their committee. Oh, I don't like it when they lead small group. Or, oh, I don't like it like when we have to do church stuff together, right? Jesus Christ died for them, right? Jesus Christ is living in them with love. Shouldn't you? Shouldn't you live with them in love too? And this leads us to the second dynamic of Christian community. Not only that it is a battlefield for godliness, it's also a harvest field for godliness. And it's in community where we can experience the fruit of God working in our lives together. As we are more and more united with Christ, more and more made like him, the fruit of compassion, and and Paul lists that out in Colossians 3. Compassion, kindness, humility, and patience. Those things, those fruits grow in our lives. Those virtues grow in our lives. And just as most of our sin involves broken relationships with others, most of our godliness is harvested and redeemed in the context of relationships as well. Okay? If you think about that, right? It's just so true. So much of your sin, it's not just you and God. It's exercise between you and your neighbor, you and your friends, you and your family members, you and the strangers, right? Well, so much of your godliness is the same way. It's not just you and God just saying, oh, like, you know, like holy and worship, and and I'm going to say holy three times, like the angels, and then we're good. No, God wants you and I to practice Christ-likeness in relationship as well. Kindness, not to God, to one another. We don't show compassion to God, but we're called to show compassion to one another, right? The fruits of godliness harvested in relationships, harvested in community. As the word of Christ richly dwells within us, what happens? Paul says, we teach, we admonish, we sing songs of thanks to God together as one body. Do you know what this means? This means that worship, what we just did, you know, singing three songs as our brother Christian and the worship team just wonderfully led us through. It means that our worship and our singing, it's not just God word. It's man word, right? And I didn't make up that word. It's just pastors, theologians make up words all the time, right? But that's, that's, what, that's what theologians say. It's not just God word, it's man word, right? Or woman word, community word, right? We don't just sing to God alone in worship. We sing to one another. To one another, we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We declare the excellencies of God to each other. So church, sing. 
Sing in worship. Sing loud. Sing with boldness. Sing with faith. Not to distract, but to declare. Not to make much of yourself because you know how to harmonize a little bit, but to make much of him. And may the corporate sound of praise fill your heart and strengthen you and produce in you joy. Church, it is one of the things that I love most about all nations. When I meet up, I, I play golf with pastor friends all the time. I play, so on Monday morning, um, I, I play, that's my golf day, that's my off day. And I'm in something called the PGA. And it, for most of you guys, you're like, oh, professional golf association. For us, it's the pastor's golf association, right? <laughs> And so we often talk about our churches. We're like, oh, you know, how's church doing? Oh, you guys start a second service, whatever it might be. And, and I love, I love talking about our church. I joke about our modular, right? I'm like, we are the greatest modular church in America, right? A modular is a fancy word for trailer, right? Um, I joke about that, but I boast about our congregational singing. I boast about our congregational singing. It gives me so much joy to hear you praise the Lord. It gives me so much joy to hear you just cry out to God from your hearts, from your lips, and delight in him. And that really is a gift that the Lord has given us as a congregation, that we delight in singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, not just to God, but to one another. All right. Doesn't that encourage you when you sit next to people and they're just singing loud and they're singing with passion and singing with joy? It makes you want to sing along, right? But if all around you, it's the arms crossed, I'm not singing group, you get super self-conscious. What do you do? You're like, oh, I'm just going to sing quietly too. Like I want to get into it, but if everyone, you know, right? I mean, there is this camaraderie in worship. There is this shared experience in congregational singing that I do believe the Lord wants us to have as a community of faith. Paul writes about it. We get to experience that every Sunday. Let me share one final verse and one closing word of exhortation. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, Timothy was his beloved disciple, a young man who is called to, to lead uh, uh, an, an older church, and he shares a final encouragement. Many of us are familiar with the beginning part, beginning part where he's like, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but we've overlooked the rest of his exhortation here, and this is what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verses 12 to 16. He says this, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, in love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. I'm gonna skip down to verse 15. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see what Paul is telling Timothy? Why should Timothy pursue godliness in his life? And why should we pursue godliness and Christ-likeness in our life? Why? To set the believers an example so that all may see, all may see your progress, that Timothy's church would see his progress, his growth, his persistence to see God working in him, God working in you. It's an odd thing to say that, oh, you know, you keep growing so that everyone can see your progress. It's weird. It's odd. It's, it's awkward. As if that should be a motivation for us to per pursue Jesus. But friends, that is absolutely true. Brothers and sisters, hear this. 
Your renovation by grace promotes our renovation by grace. Okay? Your growth in holiness means that this body is growing in holiness as well. At my former church, we used to have a members' interviews, right? And so if you want to be a member of our church, you not only had to take the class, but you had to sit through an interview session, right? And I would, I would ask a bunch of questions, and I would ask about the spiritual disciplines. And we would talk about how we need and expect every member to be practicing discipleship in their lives, to be engaged in prayer, to be good stewards, to be reading scripture, to be regular in worship, to be missional and evangelizing. And, and, and then the question will always be, why? Why is this so important? And our common understanding tells us this is really important because I need to be a good Christian, right? Like, like your discipleship, your disciplines are important so that you can be a good Christian. But I would say it's actually more than that. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than just your growth. It's bigger than just your holiness and spiritual health. It's actually for all of our spiritual health. Because if all of our members are growing in grace, that means our church is growing in grace. If all of our members are experiencing God and growing in holiness, that means God is making our body, our community, more like Christ. Holier, without blemish, without defect that God is preparing us as a bride for our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so church, when we see God and his Holy Spirit transforming you, we are all encouraged that we too can be transformed as well. And church, when you suffer loss, when you experience heartache, and we come alongside you, and as Paul writes, to grieve alongside you, to mourn with those who are mourning, and in the light and in the midst of that loss, you can still say, Jesus is my joy. Jesus is my hope. I will not be shaken. You know what that does for us who are, who are trying to comfort you and to love you and be community for you? That anchors us even more to the gospel. That produces in us so much more strength, so much more encouragement, so much more resolve when we see hurting, grieving people still have joy in Jesus. That so much affirms the reality of the gospel. And on the flip side, when we, see, when we see you guys flourish, when we see you guys excel, maybe you succeed in an amazing way in your business, in your profession, and still you can say, all of this is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. We are so blessed. We understand that riches isn't defined by this world, but it's defined by Christ and his incorruptible inheritance. And so church, brothers and sisters, this community, you know what we need? We need more than your tithes. We need more than your attendance. We need more than your service and your participation. You know what this church needs from you? It's your holiness. It is your holiness for you to be renovated by the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the greatest gift you can give this community. That is the greatest gift you can give your small group. That is the greatest gift you can give your, your uh, Bible study class if you're teaching uh, in our education department. God bless you. Thank you so much for what those kids need more than a trip to Starbucks or a hamburger. They need you to grow in holiness and to demonstrate that. Fathers and mothers, your children need your holiness more than your money, 
They need to see you walking and practicing holiness in your life. Church, this is how we can be a community that is renovated by grace. Let's be that kind of church, amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you promise us, you promise us your son, Jesus Christ, and all of the benefits that flow from Calvary. If we would just look upon Jesus and place our faith and our trust in him. And we thank you that upon this great work of salvation, that you, that you perform, that you execute in us, you give us your Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, to give us true life, and to also unite us to one another. God, help us to experience this genuine community, this organic, this powerful, transformative community. Because Lord, we, we've experienced church as just a social activity. We've experienced religion just as, as outward behavior. And God, it has not satisfied us. It has not grounded us. It has not produced in us true life, true change and true joy. And so God, we pray, Lord, that you would lead us to experience a real relationship with you and a real relationship with one another. Would you help us to pursue that? Would you help our hearts to be open to these amazing life-giving relationships? And God, we pray that as you change each and every one of us, God, that we would see you transforming our entire church. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.